sparkling water. My name is Yua Kimei-Exon. I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. Thank you for being here with me today. Last week I was so mad about not being able to find a time to record my podcast. And then today I was going to talk to the roommates about it and then instead they just left. I was like, we won't be back for hours. Thus leaving me a space to record my podcast. Thus removing the whole problem. Thus making it unnecessary for me to talk to them about it. <laughs> so that's where we're at. God, I'm realizing I got I got the wrong glasses here. These are transition lenses, which is considered not cool. They're lenses that become vague sunglasses in the sun, which is a style associated mostly with middle-aged Chinese dudes with fishing vests. Yeah. You know, sometimes I say mean things about Chinese people and... Yeah, I feel like I'm allowed to because I like identify as a Chinese person, but... If anyone else said those things, I'd be perturbed. I wouldn't like it. So, I've been feeling this thing. I've been feeling real bad about the podcast. I think I think it's because there was a period of time where, like the last five or six episodes, I was just feeling like I didn't believe in the podcast anymore which is a very universal feeling. The feeling where you're alone and you do something in the creative creative sphere and you don't have a boss and you do it and you fucking don't believe it anymore is very universal. Everyone feels it. It always reminds me of a Joan Didion thing. So now I'm going to do a, a thing that never works very well in the podcast I'm going to read a quote from Joan Didion. Now, I'm not reading this because it's some cool thing I found. Joan Didion is very famous, and this is her most famous book, and this is on the first page of her most famous book. So, that's it. All I'm saying is this is the Bible, and we can always go back to the Bible. She she writes about doing it and not believing in it. I went to San Francisco because I'd not been able to work in some months, had been paralyzed by the conviction that writing was an irrelevant act, that the world as I had understood it no longer existed. I want to read one more sentence. If I was to work again at all, it would be necessary for me to come to terms with disorder. Yeah. Anyway, she talks about how she's a writer and she like writes and then she... I think as a young person, she writes and she believes in it. And then she just hits this funk, this like um, sense of losing the meaning of it. And But she keeps doing it. So she <laughs> describes walking around as a zombie for several years. And to, to the outside world, it looked like she was working in a writer who believes in what they're doing. Because she would still submit the pieces. She would write the pieces and submit the pieces and get paid for them. And she would go to her little dinner parties with other writers and stand up with a martini and, you know, raise her kid and do everything. And she lived the entire life, but she didn't, 
believe in it. And then she started not believing in any of it, like her family or her marriage or raising a kid, none of it. But she kept raising her kid and she kept doing it. But everything just sort of like lost all color and meaning to her. And God, that's... No one writes about that better than Joan Didion, but God, I feel that so much sometimes. And I think for five, six episodes there, until last week, I was, um, I felt that. I was like still doing the podcast, but I just very, very clearly in my heart felt that I hated it and I hated myself and I didn't believe in any of it. And things were spiraling out of control and meaning was lost. Yeah. And I didn't believe in it. And then I got this one text from my buddy Elliot. Elliot, who I have not talked to in years. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Elliot, who I texted with a little bit last year, but that's it. He, he texted me this one text out of the blue. He goes, remember when I told you last year I was catching up on the pod? Well, I'm still catching up, but I'm only three episodes behind right now. And every episode I listen to, I have a response to, maybe one day we'll meet again and I'll tell you my feelings on all the things you've talked about. Also, sometimes I think, man, I know all of Joachim's stories. There can't be anything new he can tell me. And then you drop a story about brutally murdering frogs in a Swedish forest and describe it in graphic detail. And I take it all back. And then... He describes how he didn't he didn't like that story, but he generally found the podcast to be delightful. And reading that text on the pod is obviously backdoor bragging, but it had such a profound effect on me because it switched. It flicked the switch. Why did it flick the switch? It flicked the switch because the thing is... That for years, I was right for years, for 15 years, I was writing a novel that I finished and that I am now three days away from publishing. And it was this lonely act and I never showed it to anyone. And I like set up this whole thing of how it's not about getting validation from other people. It's just me. And I fucking never believed in it. And it was torture. And then the podcast, I just made it this more pragmatic thing where honestly, the podcast more than anything is just a very nice way to stay in touch with people. So when no one reached out for a couple of weeks, no one responded about the podcast for weeks. And I felt like I was just communicating with a whole. I don't know. Is that okay? Let me, th I don't know, man. Is that okay? That's probably okay. It's probably okay that I need stuff from other people. That's okay. And then he sent me that text and I just felt like, ah, oh, I am connected to people that I used to. Yeah. Sometimes people send me long voice messages and then I feel really connected to people. But even that just text was made me feel really connected to people. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then I was hanging out in the bar late last a couple of nights ago or something and Cass was acknowledging talking about my podcast somehow in front of Miguel the bartender and Miguel the bartender was like thought it was so funny so funny of a joke that Cass was joking that I had a podcast and then Cass was like it's not a joke <laughs> and then he's like what and then he's like 
Yeah. And then he came at me two days later and was like, I listened to all these episodes of the podcast and, and you got me cracking up. That's what he told me. And it's like, ah. Oh. And that was like the same day as the text from Elliot. So once again, the podcast is something, I mean, it's funny how fleeting it is because what I actually felt was I hated the podcast for six, seven episodes there. And then these people told me, just talked to me about it a little bit. And then I again felt connected to the world and people around me. But then now sitting here saying this out loud, I feel like I'm washing all color out of the experience and I'm now experiencing the nothingness again. And it's just like the void is now back. Now that I have said it out loud, it has killed it. It is now gone. It's weird how some things have built in self-defeating, self-destructive, self-destruction sequence initiated, built into it, you know? I was at a meeting just now, and um, this guy at the meeting... I'm obviously not going to say his name because it's the whole point of the meetings is that, is that they're anonymous, but also his story is super nonspecific. But he talked about how he has a period of sobriety. I don't know how much he was being very unspecific. He has a sort of a long period of sobriety now. And throughout that long period of sobriety and throughout working the program of humility and calmness and peace, throughout working that, he has learned how to be really, really good at what he does. I don't know what he does. He didn't say what he does, but he just said, did I? Whoa. I did a lens wipe without even noticing. Um, so he has a period of sobriety. He has mastered a craft, a trade that he does professionally. And then he just told a story of how being really good at it really bolsters his ego. And late last night at 1 a.m., they called him. Because no one else can solve the problem of whatever he does for a living. Lots of other people do it too, but the other people couldn't do it and they needed him. So they call him at 1 a.m. and he needs to show up because he's the last line of defense, you know? He's the best. And so he shows up and he does it and everyone fucking needs him and everyone loves that he shows up and that he does the job better than anyone. And then he talks about how... The whole program in Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of ego deflation. And that is a powerful program that makes him really good at stuff. And being really good at stuff makes it so that he's surrounded by people that inflate his ego. So there's like a built-in self-destructive component to it. And man, that resonated with me because like now I got about two years and nine months of sobriety, I'd say. And... um That, in a very practical and in a very spiritual sense, that just opened my mind up, sobriety. Like, I just, my schedule opened up. Like, just getting wasted every day took, out, took up so much time. So when I wasn't getting wasted every night, I just had all this time, and then I just learned all this stuff. So, like, the thing I do for a living, it's like I just got so much better at it, because I would just sit at night and just, like, lazily read about stuff. You know, how do you do this? How do you solve, like, what is this? You know, because you look at a bar and there's like a thousand ingredients in there and you can Google any of those ingredients and learn about it. Like, what is it, you know? The fuck does Drambui mean? 
Drambuie just means grog. You know? And then, having this peace in my heart, working hard, waking up fresh-faced, not hungover, having this program of humility. Humility really... I had never figured out what the feeling of humility was before I started the program, but the feeling of humility to me is like really just sort of a peaceful thing of like, it is just the, the act of, it's almost like there's a couple of steps to it where first you just realize that all the stuff you're mad about, all the conflicts that's going on, all the stuff you're stressed out about, it's not all these other people's faults. It's your own fault. Now you're also part of it. And you're exactly like them. And then just letting go of all of it and being like, it's all right, bro. We're all the same. We're all the same and it's all okay. And it's like, some people might be doing worse than me and, and it's fine. They're just, they're on their own path and I was doing worse before and now I'm doing better. But I'm really experiencing this sort of like ego inflation. My ego is really inflated by how things are going really well. And that's the wrong direction for me. And I got to go to more meetings, I think, because I'm really thinking more and more about how, like, maybe I could drink again. Not from a... Because the easy early sobriety answer is, I was drinking because I was feeling like shit. And so I can't... If I'm feeling like shit and I want to drink, I, I'm not allowed to drink because it's just going to make it worse. But then an, an early sobriety pitfall is when you're starting to feel good and then you feel elated and then you feel like, what could possibly go wrong? I can drink to feel better because the rule is that I'm not allowed to drink when I feel bad because that'll make everything worse. But if I feel fine, I can just drink to feel better and it's fine. And so that's how a fucking couple of relapses happened. But then there's that, but in an even more like profound and subtle way where you feel like, well, now I have all these aspects of life just figured out and things are like on track and things are like going well. So maybe I can just take this peaceful feeling and just drink and just be peaceful about it. And the truth is that I don't know the answer. Maybe five years from now I'll have everything sorted out and everything will be good and I'm just a peaceful guy and I'll just start drinking and I'll drink all peaceful and I won't be an alcoholic anymore. But like, but probably not, probably not, probably that's not it. But we don't know. In the meeting rooms, people talk about how that's absurd. But really, it's not. I don't know. It's like the thing about the meetings, when you're being completely honest, is that that's a room full of the people that that wasn't true for. People who drank and then did the program for a bit and figured out how to not drink and then relapsed and then never got to a peaceful way of drinking so they have to go back to the rooms the people who figured out a peaceful way of drinking don't come back to the rooms so we don't know about them we don't know what their deal is i can't decide if i want to have my hat facing backwards or forwards let's do a water so 
Today we're doing something a little bit different, and I don't want this to be the new thing, and I don't want this to be a trend, but we're doing it one time. Today we're kind of reviewing weird Asian drinks, and the point of the podcast is the boringness of sparkling water, and weird Asian drinks are not boring. This week in weird Asian drinks, it's like a more legitimate, like, things you could do with blinking lights and stuff. So... We're going to do this one time and that's it. This brand is, it's from Suntory. It's called Gokuri. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. It says grapefruit and then under grapefruit it says pink and white. And the word pink is in pink and the word white is in yellow. Because these crazy Japanese people, they keep you guessing. They're perverts, man. Japanese people are perverts. Um, so this has high fructose corn syrup in it. 80 calories in a can. It's a metal bottle because these Japanese people keep you guessing and metal bottles are excellent to drink out of. Excellent. Hopefully it's sparkling. Otherwise, otherwise I'm just going to fucking wander off. Wow. That's a difficult bottle to open. All right. I do love grapefruit. So it's three weird drinks that are grapefruit flavored or citrus flavored. Wow, that is not sparkling. Okay. Why does it say soft drink on the back? Okay. Infuriating. Totally infuriating. That's just cold water mixed with grapefruit juice, which is a very nice drink, but my God. I think that's the third time on the podcast that we've had a drink on that wasn't actually sparkling. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, God. Dark Night of the Soul. So, um, okay, I'm going to try to talk about something else now. This is super abstract, and it's like, I don't know, man. So, I've been talking about Phoebe Bridgers a little bit on the podcast, because I have a obsession with Phoebe Bridgers, and then um, when I, I had this friend, and when I told her I liked Phoebe Bridgers, she was like, do you like, do you like, do you like, um, what's her name? Dacus? I don't even know how it was pronounced. The other girl. Um, Lucy Dacus? Um, and so I listened a little bit to her and I found a single or two. And then there's this third girl, Julian Baker. And the three of them kind of made music together, and they're viewed as sort of the same style. So if you like one, you might like the other. So here I am, obsessed with Phoebe Bridgers, having listened to every song Phoebe Bridgers has put out, having gone on YouTube and found all the, like, rare early recordings, all the shit, and looking for new music. And then, so I go to Julian Baker, and... I read about her on Wikipedia and I read that there's this one early album that she came out with, which is why she's famous, why Julian Baker is famous. So one day I put on this album, it's called Sprained Ankle. So I put it on, I listened to it from first to last song. I just listened through the whole thing while I'm like cleaning, while I'm like putting some paperwork away, whatever. I listened to the whole thing. And my takeaway from the album was like, oh yeah, that's a kind of nice album. I, I, I enjoy how every song has the same mood. The same lo-fi kind of like, it's kind of chill. She's strumming a guitar. But the thing was, I couldn't hear a word she was saying. 
I couldn't hear a word she was saying, and the whole thing was very nondescript. It just didn't make a big impression on me. So that's the first part of the story, okay? I listened to all of Sprained Ankle. I felt like it was nondescript. It was nice how it's the whole time she's just strumming along in this sort of like low tempo. It's not stressful. It's kind of chill. You can listen to it, but you can't hear a word she's saying, and it doesn't really mean much. And I remember thinking, all right, that was a not some sort of world-altering thing, but if I'm ever like hanging out with someone and I just want some background music... Let's remember this album and maybe just put this album on to have some ladies strumming in the background and kind of humming along and have that be background music at some point in the future if I just want hangout music. Because sometimes if you're hanging out, it's annoying to play music where the words are really pronounced and clear because then it's like kind of like someone's talking and then someone's singing loud over that. It's better with like non-word music for hanging out. You feel me? So that was my, that's like the first part of the story. I listened through the album. And then weeks went by, and I got into a couple of singles of Lucy Dacus, you know. I got a little bit tired of some Phoebe Bridgers shit just because I listened to the same song on repeat thousands of times, all this stuff. And then I got into like one song of Julian Baker, Blacktop, which is actually the first song on this Brained Ankle album. And then this weird thing happened where... <clears throat> Because I listened to the song Blacktop over and over and over, I just figured out how to understand what the fuck she's saying. Because it's really hard to understand what she's saying because she's mumbling. But once I'd figured it out, I just understood what she was saying. And also, like, I mean that both literally, like, literally can't understand the word she's saying and also, like, emotionally... For some reason, once I'd broken through and liked one song a lot, emotionally, I just had this key to unlock how I felt about all of her songs. And then this crazy thing happened where I listened to the album Sprained Ankle again, and I think it's like one of my favorite albums I've ever heard. Every single song is like... Every single song is incredible and incredibly profound and deep and heartbreaking. And it's like ever since I got sober, especially ever since I even tried to break this addiction to like romance addiction or like flirting with girls and stuff, music is almost like the strongest emotional experience I have in my life now. Where like I listen to these songs and it's like they're so good. And like on Wednesday, I drove to Yuba City and the whole it's a long drive. And then the whole time I'm just like playing these songs on loop and then I was waiting for them to fix my truck just do some maintenance on my truck and the whole time I'm sitting there with headphones just listening to this album and it was like the best day I've had in a long time because the whole day I was just sitting there all zoned out listening to Julian Baker wandering through vintage shops and it's like the thing about it that's so crazy to me is that I've already listened to this album. The thing about it that's so crazy to me is that I've already heard it, but I didn't hear it or something. Like, I don't... That thing... That thing is so confusing to me. How... It's almost like... 
because I experienced this with a lot of stuff. The big one that I that made a big impression on me early in life is the, the movie The Godfather. I remember being like a nerd on the internet as a teenager, and on the internet on like IMDb and whatever movie forums or what not movie forums. I never hung out on a movie forum, but but. The Godfather, the movie The Godfather is like very generally considered like the best movie ever or one of the best movies ever. And like on a lot of these websites where you can rate every single movie, The Godfather is just number one. So I remember being like 12 or 13, like kind of young and watching it and like being like, this is boring as fuck. This is as boring as fucking all get out. That's my new favorite expression. (laughs) And then I tried again two, three years later and just watched The Godfather again. And it was so boring. And then I tried again at like 18. And then I tried again at like 20 years old or something. And for some reason, the fourth time, first of all, it's weird that I just kept trying, but I kept trying. And the fourth time it just worked. It just opened. It just, it was as if, this is how I experienced it almost. It's as if there's this vibration in your soul and it's like, bum, 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 bum. And the piece of art is like, existing on a different frequency usually on a lower frequency like the best things are like on lower frequencies where your soul is too stressed out and vibrating too quickly to fucking resonate with the good shit and your soul is up here like just watching tiktok videos and shit just doing all this fast diet media diet just all this stressed out shit that doesn't that just gives you like slow fast dopamine hits and it's like and then finally you just get to this mood where you grow up a little bit where you figure shit out or you just slow it down and you're like and you found like you find like a new rhythm on a lower frequency and you just calm down and you just get in this sense where you can like okay i can be calm now i can maybe connect with something a little bit more harder to approach and you watch the godfather and when i watched it when i was 20 i was like oh i get it now this movie is so atmospheric and it has these characters and these relationships with these characters that are so like suggestive and subtle and deep and enormously beautiful it has like this literary quality it's like reading a really like a book that really connects with you and I watched The Godfather and it was fucking amazing. I was like, oh. And then I've never needed to rewatch it. And I haven't seen The Godfather in 15 years. But I just know that it's like, I get it. It's like one of the best movies ever. Because it just has these characters and relationships and subtle faces and subtle tensions between people. And it's like a really quiet, it's got all these quiet characters. And my soul just slowed down to a frequency where I could connect with that movie. And then with Julian Baker, it's some some of the same shit where it's like, for some reason, my mind was like, dun, 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 and Julian Baker was down here like, bum, 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 bum. And then when I connected with it, it's like, I mean, especially on Wednesday when I was in Yuba City, it's like, I would wander around these... I would, I would just listen to the songs on repeat and they were so beautiful and I just wanted to cry and I'm wandering around this vintage store and then when I had to take my headphones off to like ask a question about a fucking shoe like how much is this upside down boot here oh it's two dollars and it's like I don't want it if it's two dollars I thought it was twenty and then like when I had to take my headphones off, off or when I just had to drive a little bit whenever I wasn't listening to it my heart was just screaming out in pain And these like sentences from the songs were just like, 
echoing in my head like like I just really wanted to get back there. And it's like this incredibly strong experience. It's so weird. And it blows my mind that somehow the thing passed through me and I didn't notice. But yeah, I mean, it's the same with a lot of things. It's like um, fucking olives, you know? No one likes an olive the first time they have it. No one likes wine the first time they have wine. Or an old-fashioned. Excuse me, I just did a little burp there. I haven't even had a carbonated beverage yet. Only had a still grapefruit beverage. Still did a burp. Um, yeah. No one likes wine the first time they have it. Even people who are like big wine people and they like expensive shit and they like the good shit and they like the subtle, complex, you know, burgundy Pinot Noirs that are like really soft and small. Even that guy, like the first time he had wine, he probably spit it out. Um, it's, um, I've been thinking about the pattern of that. Of like, so how does that work? Because it almost feels like the pattern is like this. If you have a kid that's never tried olives and you kind of want the kid to like olives, it's almost like you have to have make the kid eat an olive at 11 years old. Eat it, hate it, and then wait a year. And then it's this thing of how it now helps that you know a little bit what to expect. I don't know. It's, it's, maybe it's because your expectations are now super low and now you know what to expect. But there's also been this like opening of the mind. There's an opening of the mind component to it. There's something about that quote of like how once a mind has been expanded to understand a new idea, it can no longer go back to its smaller, it can no longer shrink back to its smaller previous size or shape. And that applies for olives. Once you've stuffed an olive in there, your mind never goes back to that smaller than an olive size. Because you have to try it, and then you have to wait, and then you have to try it again. And then hopefully, it'll just be like, wow, this is like pretty good. And then you're like, keep going with it, and you have another all of the next week, and you're like, bro, these things are, these things are kind of dank. And then you have olives all the time, and then you're like, olives are, olives are wonderful. You know? Chop up some olives, throw them on a, throw them on some bread with some ham, you know, some mustard. Maybe throw some olives on a fucking pizza. I don't know. In the end, it's like the things we love the most are things that we didn't even fucking like the first time we interacted with them. All the shit that's the hardest, hardest to love. This is the stuff we love the most. And the weird part about that is like, it's so weird to invent things that are hard to love. Like imagine the guy who invented olives. 
Like, how did he know to come back a year later and eat the thing he hated one more time? You know? How did Julian Baker know to make an album that you fucking don't connect with the first time? Because that's the most respectable thing. Like, anyone can... It's in that, from that sense, in that perspective, it's almost easier to be John Lennon and sit down and write the word imagine, the song imagine. Cause it's like you hit those licks on the piano and Im- immediately everyone, first time you hear it, everyone's just vibing like, Oh yeah, this is emotional as fuck. Listen to this piano riff, bro. Dun, 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 dun. Imagine all the people. Tell me you have perfect pitch without telling me you have perfect pitch. Johnny Erickson over here with perfect, perfect pitch this week in perfect pitch. Um, it's almost easier to write a song like that, that everyone just loves right away. I don't know. Maybe some people think that song is also good on them. I don't know. Making pop music versus making music that's, it takes a few listen and then when it clicks with you you're like changed forever i don't know and then i'm out, out here fucking trying to sell a book that people are like nah <laughs> it's pretty good but i don't think i can sell this to anyone and i'm like but what if it's just a kind of thing where you have to read it four times and on the fourth time you realize it's the best book you've ever read <laughs> The funny thing is that I didn't want to write a book like that. I wanted to write a pop book. I wanted to write something that was just like easy and funny and approachable. And I actually think I did. Because when typesetting the thing, I reread it. And it's good. It's good as fuck. It's a great novel. It's so fucking entertaining. And it's got so many weird smart ideas in there. It's like all all the good ideas I had over a 15 year period. Sun-dried, chopped up, you know, turned into a salsa, served to you, 290 pages, nothing excessive. No, I trimmed all the fat out of that novel. There's not a single page that doesn't hold like some identifiable idea that I had. I don't know. But who cares? annoying oh god i should drink another water okay so weird asian drink number two this one is maybe weirder poka sapporo is the company and it has only japanese on it in chinese these words are pronounced guomei which means fruit beauty and then there's like a picture of an orange on it oh and it says mikangurt so it's kind of like yogurt, but mikan. And mikan, because we've reviewed um, Kimino brand sparkling waters, we know that mikan is either Japanese for orange, or it is a Japanese orange, like a different type of citrus. Oh, thank God. So we're dealing with a, another metal bottle, which is awesome. But this time, it seems like we got a little bit of carbonation up in this bitch. Um, I love it. There's only Japanese on this. 1% fruit juice. 1%. I can read one thing here in the Japanese. Because those Japanese perverts, they went to China and they stole all those characters. And they couldn't come up with their own character for fruit juice. Whoa! That's a crazy smell. <laughs> that smells like 
fake ass pear flavored ice cream. It smells like pigeline. What we back in Sweden call pigeline. It's a it's a pop. It's a frozen popsicle that's bright green and pear flavored, but artificial. Okay, so I will never do this again because this is also not sparkling. Somehow when I opened it, it made a fizzing sound, but this is literally not sparkling. Okay. This is unprecedented. Episode 78. Two of the drinks so far are not sparkling. Should I just shut this podcast down right here? Should I just take my mic off and just wander off the set? Leave the camera rolling? Never come back? Anyway, let's move on to the next topic. The next topic is... Excuse me, I had a little burp there. Um... It feels so empowering to do something when you're really tired. When you have a new thing you're doing, like I've been managing at work for a bit now for a couple of weeks. And I like do it and I have to like get everyone to get along a little bit, but they do their own jobs and everyone's real good and I don't have to do anything. And then I do my job and I serve a section and then like, they need shit printed and they need this and they need little things and they need someone to let them into this room and I do my little things. And then at the very end, I like count all the money and go through all the finances and just created this end of day report. And it's not that complicated once you got it figured out, but it's kind of complicated to figure it out because I've never really done anything very similar to it. Honestly, if I'm being honest, I don't, it's kind of different from every other job I've ever had. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it is. But the point is that, um, we had a little bit of a wave of COVID hit us and, um, and, uh, I was called, what's that? Uh, oh God, I can't remember any words right now. The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell. A call to adventure? The Hero's Journey is that you start out normal and then there's a call to adventure. Call to, I want to say call to arms. Anyway, I was called on to step up a little bit and I had to work more and I had to close the restaurant every night for a little bit. And then... One of those nights got really out of control and and a lot of people showed up at midnight at the downstairs bar and I didn't get out of there until 2.15 a.m. And then I'm all hyper. And I was so tired in my brain. And then the next day I did it again. And it was a little bit earlier, but all of those different experiences, like it just compounded... I was very tired for it all. And I just have this feeling with stuff generally that if I haven't done it when I'm, I'm fearful that I won't be able to do it when I'm super tired. And then when I'm extremely tired at 2am doing all this math, got two calculators going at the same time at 2am doing all this fucking just mathing up a storm. When I've done it, it feels so empowering, and then it feels like, oh, 
now I know how to do this in my sleep. And that's the gold standard for when you really know how to do something. And then now I'm less nervous about it. Even just doing it when I'm not tired. Now I'm just like, I got it. I got it figured out. It also helps to just like do everything, do it all every day for a couple of days in a row. Yeah. But um, I've had that feeling about every job I've ever had. Like I was a teacher in China and I'd be so nervous about it. I would make sure to sleep a bunch before going to work every day. And I'd be like, if I'm ever tired, I won't be able to do this. And then, you know, inevitably, eventually it happens where you just can't sleep and you show up and you're super tired and you have to do it anyway. And then after you've done it, like, and I'm literally talking about like, I would go, I had times when I slept zero hours and then it's like 6am, 7am. You're like so tired that you're, neck muscle just sort of collapses every couple of minutes and then you just go to work and you like teach a class and you do it on pure adrenaline and then at the end of that at the end of the day at like 3 p.m when you're done it's so empowering because now you know now you have run the experiment and you have this like definitive answer that i can do this regardless of how tired i am so now i can be less nervous about it because we're good yeah Sometimes you have to run that worst case scenario to feel better about it all. <sighs> yeah. How do I feel? I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. We'll do the third water. This one is Organics from Safeway. Clementine flavored organic Italian soda. We're trying something new. Italian soda is a crazy American concept that has nothing to do with Italy. It's one of those racist things where Americans make up something disgusting and they try to blame someone else immediately. They're like, they make up something that they're immediately ashamed of. And then they're afraid to bring it to their friend and offer it to their friend. So they are like, oh, I heard, I heard about this from an Italian guy. I heard about this from an Italian guy. You take flavored syrup, let's say some raspberry syrup, you pour that over ice. Then you pour a bunch of soda water on it, and then you pour a bunch of half and half on it, and then you drink a drink with half and half, which is disgusting. But before you do that, you top it with whipped cream. Can you think of anything more disgusting than that? Can you think of a more perverse way to destroy soda water, sparkling water, the beverage we all know and love? And to pour half and half in it? Disgusting. And um, here we have it in a bottle and there's no half and half and it's like some sort of weird store version. I think Italian soda can be multiple things because... Oh my God. I put this in a bucket of ice water and all the, the labels are just sliding around on this thing. Which is kind of nice actually. Just no label. Let's just take the label off. Oh. 
It's like a metal bottle is nice, but a glass bottle with no label is maybe nicer. Oh, that's foul. At least it's sparkling. So today, I mean, not today, this week at work, this one time, Kelsey the busser kept making herself this drink where she took a glass, poured a little bit of ice in there, filled it off halfway with half and half, you know, literally like half of a drinking glass of half and half. And then the other half, she would pour orange juice in there. So she mixed orange juice and half and half, an entire drinking glass full. And then she'd drink it, and then she'd make herself a second one. And then I'm looking at it like, you drinking these? Like, you drinking half and half? And she's skinny, too, so it's like, you drinking half and half, lady? And I was just like, yeah, she's delicious. It's like a cream soda. And I'm like, yeah, but you're drinking half and half, though. Like, isn't that kind of obscene? Isn't that kind of crazy? And she did it. She drank three of those, three of those bad boys. And then after the third one, she's like, I don't feel so good. I think I might be lactose intolerant. And I looked at her like, lady, I think you just had three glasses of half and half. I don't think you're lactose intolerant. It's like Harvey when he's like, he does a massive, yeah, okay, yeah. He shouldn't really say that just like that, but... Javi engages in a lot of unhealthy behavior, and then at the end of it all, he wakes up feeling like shit, and then he's like, I think I'm gluten intolerant. I think I need to be off gluten. It's like, yeah. Yeah, you had a massive amount of alcohol. And then it's like, yeah, but beer. It was because that beer has gluten, and it was the gluten in the beer that's why I feel like shit. And it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not out here arguing with people because, you know, everyone's program is different, and we don't really learn from each other. We have to come to our own answers. And I don't know what's going on in someone else's body. And I'm not a doctor. And I need to exercise humility. And I don't have answers. And it's all good. But <laughs> I don't think it's the gluten, though, bro. I think it might be the alcohol. I think it might be hungover because of the alcohol. And because he stayed up until 6.30 a.m. He's like, no, 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 it's the gluten. I got to drink just White Claws. Got to drink just White Claws. Yeah, Kelsey. Kelsey, the lactose intolerant uh, host. Yeah. So, um, here's a weird topic that I don't even know how to talk about because it's barely even a topic, but like... So, <clears throat> Russia invaded Ukraine, right? So now the whole world is like learning about Ukraine. That's how we do it. America is at least self-aware enough to make memes about how we're really just learning geography by going to war and through war and stuff. And And so, I'm out here like, I'll be humble and admit here that I don't know where Ukraine is. Like, if you gave me a map, I'm just not very good at like... Soviet states. I know like Kazakhstan. No, I don't. I know Mongolia. I know Mongolia because it's wedged in there between China and Russia. And then there's Inner Mongolia and China, which really helps you out. Because Inner Mongolia is 
right next to Mongolia, Mongolia, which, you know, one day China will probably take over Mongolia and call it Outer Mongolia and make it another province. But that's neither here nor there. That's that Chinese inclusivism that I talk about in my novel. How they're friendly and they'll include your country in their country. Um, they'll move, they'll move the boundary rock up. It's all good. Um, but so Ukraine's out there and, and I don't know where Ukraine is. And then I'm out here looking on a map and then there's this thing of like, people talk, keep talking about it in, in the context of Europe, how we haven't had a war in Europe for a long time. There hasn't been an invasion in Europe for a long time. It threatens the European order. And I'm out here like, I'm going to be honest. I'm out here like, is Ukraine in Europe? I'm going to be honest. That's what I ask myself. I'm like, Ukraine? I thought Ukraine was like Kazakhstan and Mongolia and stuff. That it's like, it's over there. Like it's just outside of Europe on like that, like maybe next to Russia. Like on that part of it, that's more like Asia. But like, we don't think of it as Asia so much because like the concept of Asia, we mostly associate with like East Asia. So I'm out here Googling like, is Ukraine in Europe? And that is such a stupid question that there's no answer on Google. <laughs> it's so stupid. Such a stupid, it's like so basic of a second grader question that there is, there are no Google hits. Like there's no website where on the top of the website, it says, is Ukraine in Europe? And then at the bottom of the website, it's like, yes or no. And no, actually, you know what? The stupidest question that I asked was like, because I looked at a map and I was looking at it and I was like, okay, so this is Europe, I guess, this map here. And then Ukraine is there down in the bottom right corner and it's in Europe. So what I Googled was, was Ukraine always part of Europe? And and then I started having to click through all these things on Wikipedia and I realized this thing that like, this shit's confusing as fuck. Like Europe is, I don't understand why it took me so long to, to realize this, but Europe is completely made up. Europe is not a thing. And I don't mean made up in the sense like all countries are made up. We sort of make it up. Europe is like a way vaguer of a concept than I really grasp there for a sec because there's no because there's the eu which is like a political pact which is like a thing there's literal people come together and they sign a piece of bunch of paper and and it's like a thing where there's one thing and they that's a definitive thing that doesn't change until you re-sign the papers and put someone else in the eu or kick someone out or whatever it's like very definitive it's not just a cultural idea it's a legal concept but Europe is just a cultural idea. And then I'm, and then I'm like trying to figure out in English, what is, what is Europe and Asia and North America and South America? What are those? Because I remember being in third grade and in Sweden, when you're a young kid, you are taught the continents and you're taught something that we in Swedish called. So continents in Swedish is called continental. It's just the same word. Okay. And then there's this other concept of världsdel, which just means world part. It's just one of the parts of the world. So we're taught that there's all these världsdelar. There's Africa, there's Europe, there's Asia, there's South America. These are världsdelar. And they're separate from continents because continent is a geological concept of like 
the rocks are gathered here in this pile, and then this is one cohesive uh, plate, you know, tectonic, geological, whatever, continent plate with water around it. And then I'm like, so what is Valsdale in English? And it's like, bro, it doesn't exist. You guys just call all of it continents. But it's like, it's not a con. Like, that's confusing as fuck. Because continent is a, that's a, that's a, that's a people who look at limestone and fucking, fucking rock formations all day. That's a concept for them about fucking lava and magma under the fucking tectonic plates and stuff. So confusing. So then I'm like clicking through this and I'm trying to like figure out like, why is it so different in English and in Swedish? And, and it got me to this one part that I thought was kind of interesting. It's like, they're just called continents in English. And then, so, the seven-continent model is usually taught in English-speaking countries, including the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia, and also in China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the Philippines, and parts of Western Europe. The seven-continent model, being that South America and North America are separate, Europe and Asia are separate. It's just like you just draw a line and you, you count it out to seven. And then the six-continent combined Eurasia model is mostly used in Russia, Eastern Europe, and Japan. And that's – it's interesting in, because I really do believe that like um, language and categorizations in language and like how – for example, how we categorize color if we have – like in J Japanese, they have like one word. It's like ao or something, which is basically blue and green. So all of the blue and green and sh shades in between can be categorized in this one big concept of color. And so I just really believe that that influences how you see something. You show someone a painting and how they like experience that painting. And I really feel like I haven't really interrogated in myself how that's just a cultural, how Europe is fucking made up. And then it's interesting that in Russia, because Russia is like, the way I was taught in, in Swedish school is like, the line, the European, the edge of Europe, the eastern edge of Europe just cuts Russia, not in half, but it goes through Russia. It goes through like Moscow. So like the western part of Russia the most Western part is part of Europe, but the rest of Russia is not. So it's like you cut this country in half. And then that's like an uncomfortable, like that doesn't really make sense if you're from Russia. Like it makes less intuitive sense to view the world as this thing where like your country is in two continents. So it makes sense to me that in Russia, they don't really do that. They don't really use the seven continent model. They do the six continent model where, where, um, Eurasia is one continent. And then there's like the five continent. Com oh, no. There's the six continent combined America model where South and North America is one continent. That's taught in all these countries to speak Romance languages, Suriname, and also like Greece, Belize, Indonesia, all these random other ones. Anyway. Because it's interesting, the, um, the concept of Europe, how 
when you grow, when I was growing up in Sweden, the concept of Europe, Europe was a very weak identity. I think all people have multiple identities and I think you can almost rank your identities where you more than, more than anything, you feel like a thing. And then you have these like a secondary and a third and a fourth and a fifth identity. So what's my primary identity? Yeah, that's the thing, you know, like maybe my primary identity is that I'm Swedish and that's a thing that's because I left Sweden being Swedish became much more important because when I was in Sweden, I think maybe my primary identity as a teenager living in Sweden was probably more some pretentious about being an artist or something. Feeling like I wanted to make big, important art. And then when you leave Sweden and people view you as a foreigner and as an outsider and as a Swede, it like, it's very contingent on people's, how people see you from the outside. But, um, I remember living in China and hanging out with like French people and a couple of Brits and Americans. And then the Americans had this concept that we were all Europeans. And that was so, that, that concept was so foreign to me and so new and so weird that I would look at these French dudes and the, and these like British girls and be like, we have something in common that is different than the Americans. And it was especially weird because like you grow up as a Swede and you watch all American TVs, you know, so much about America and I don't know anything about France. You know, I've read like five books. Read like five books by French dudes. I've seen maybe, I don't remember a single one, but maybe I've seen a movie and a half from France. I've been there a little bit. I've been in southern France a little bit, you know, had a bunch of wine from France, but I don't know anything about France. It's so weird to have someone from the outside um, lump me together with these people that I have nothing in common with because Europe, Europe as an identity used to be a very weak identity. And then I think with the EU and just more recently in my lifetime, it's just been a thing where with the EU and with the currency that was introduced, the euro, that they were just trying to build. Because these identities are built, you know, they're constructed. And and just like how the, the US had this big national project of coming up with an identity for what it means to be an American, which is a weird demonym for a thing that could be the demonym for anyone from South or North America, but really American is the term that was picked for the people from the United States. And, and they came up with this identity of all these adjectives of what it means. And, and it holds the country together and it gives everyone a little bit of gumption in their step. And then they're trying to do that in Europe. So they're trying to make us feel more like Europeans where that's held together. And, but when I, when I was younger, that was less of a thing. And, and it's interesting because I think the feeling is similar. When I was like 20 years old and I'm in China and all these Americans are talking about us as Europeans. And I'm like, I really like European as an identity is like my 11th identity. Like I have 10, like I feel more like a Starcraft gamer than a European. You know, there's fucking things that are very vague to me that I feel stronger than vaguest of them all, which is the concept of being a European. And I think a similar thing is how 
when you, if you, for example, you're a Chinese person and then you go to America, in America, there's this concept of Asian Americans. So like if you're Chinese and you move to America and then you have a kid and your kid grows up in America, now your kid is Asian American. And now you're asked to think that you have something in common with, I mean, you have something in common for sure, but like that you're supposed to view yourself not as a Chinese person, not as a Chinese American, but you're supposed to be part of this bigger umbrella concept of Asian American. Because I tell you that in Asia, those people are not one thing. <laughs> like Koreans and Chinese people and Japanese people, if anything, they are enemies. <laughs> Much more than compatriots, they are enemies. And they are different from each other and they are much better at finding and isolating and emphasizing their differences than their similarities. And then you, you have these second generation or first generation or whatever that, however you use those words, people who grow up in America who become part of this community of Asian Americans. And it's such a different worldview than their parents who are like fucking Philippine immigrants who, you know, they grew up in a fucking genocide where if you were Chinese, we fucking murdered you, you know? We could just take a machete and chop your head off on the street, you know? Like that crazy movie, The Act of Killing. Wow, that's a terrible, awful movie to watch. That is crazy. They just it, It's a documentary where they just interviewed this guy who just murdered all these people. Oh, I'm so stupid. I don't even know if that was the Philippines or like Malaysia or Indonesia. I don't know. I'm an idiot and I would like to apologize for not remembering which country the act of killing is set in. But I said, but really loud because I was looking at the waveform and I just wanted to make sure it was still working. But, um, It's interesting because the experience of it is you are confronted with something. You're confronted with this new idea that this outsider who who is from far away from where you are is now lumping you together with these people that you are not used to being lumped together with. People that you you view yourself in a matrix in relationship with them, but it's a lot of adversarial relationships. And now you're supposed to view the, those people as your brothers. And... The th interesting thing about it is that it is a give and a take because you soak in the gaze of another for a while, for a few years. You are an Asian American in America for, you're a, you're a first generation Chinese American for a few years and you, more and more people talk about you as Asian American. What happens is that you do develop a little bit of a fraternity between yourself and first-generation Korean-Americans, first-generation Filipino-Americans, just all the people where you have nothing in common with them at all, but the only thing in common is that to the white people, you look the same. And the interesting thing is that there's a give and a take where that does affect you, and after enough time, you feel like you have something in common with them because you do, because you're all treated the same, you know? Violence against Asian Americans is not very discerning. 
violence against Asian Americans is not like the uptick in violence against Asian Americans that was maybe correlated with cost by the the pandemic is not very discerning. It's not very good at just focusing on people from fucking Wuhan. It's you know they'll beat the shit out of some nice old Japanese Japanese lady who happens to be wandering down the street in America. But so I feel like having been steeped in the American gaze for 15 years, I have become much more of a European where I just like identify much more as a European. And then it turns into this, like, like for me, it turned into this much more like an opportunity where like you work at fancy restaurants and you can like pretend that this is how you've always been. And you can pretend to be like a pretentious American. Now I've always been pretentious. Don't get me wrong, but. I never knew that the key to being pretentious is to to pretend to be this thing that I didn't even realize I was, which is a European. It's interesting to think about, like, what if um, aliens hit, hit us up and we communicate with aliens and they have some sort of culture and they're humanoid enough to have some sort of culture, to have some sort of language so we can communicate with them, so we can view them as an other, and how that will... Like, if they were to communicate with us and talk to us constantly as, like, one thing, where they view all humans as the exact same, if we sit with that for enough years, we would probably... It would probably make us, as a human race, more cohesive... It would affect us and it would make us more cohesive. <gasps> I'm not wearing my watch. Oh, I knew I was forgetting something. This is a weird episode. I'm wearing sweatpants. I bought these nice ass sweatpants at Zara. They're brown. Oh, God. Yeah. The seven continent model. Dude, these fucking lexical gaps are driving me crazy. You can't call Europe a continent. Oh god, that's that now it's annoying because I had a funny quote. Hold on. Yeah, I lost it. I had a funny quote about how like Europe is it, it on Wikipedia like the the seven continent model where they write about it, they it it just talks about how Europe is a continent, even though it's not a continent, but it's always considered a continent because of its vast size, enormous culture, and historical importance. That's like what it says. And it's like, okay, seems a little bit Eurocentric. Eurocentric much? It's like, vast size? Europe is small, my dude. Isn't Russia bigger than Europe, probably? I think Europe is like the size of a quarter of Africa or I think Europeans always watch, look at Europe as one thing because of themselves. I don't know, but I, I'm just done saying that Europeans don't look at themselves as Europeans, but no, really how it feels, what the actual feeling of it, since we're really digging into this, the actual feeling of it growing up in Europe. It's not that you are a European. It's that Europe Europe is the world and you are you have an identity within Europe. 
I'm a Swedish person. That's my identity within Europe. And then I know my different attitudes towards the other parts. And there are lots of adversarial attitudes. But there's a big feeling of like everything beyond Europe is, is vague. It's kind of blurry. It's kind of out of focus. And so it's not so much that you feel like a European. It's more like Europe is all you know any sort of meaningful amount about. And then you... Yeah. It's where all the stuff is. Which might be similar, but not exactly the same as how Americans have a way of conceptualizing the world as America. And everything beyond America is quite blurry to them if we're being honest everything outside of america is quite blurry yeah anyway but yeah i just want to be humble and admit to y'all that i'm really really not very smart or knowledgeable about anything and this week i googled has europe always been a part of ukraine and that is such a stupid question that there are literally no answers to it on the internet because it's so much like you can look at a map europe is in i mean ukraine is in europe and there wasn't some other map before but but there was a lot of other maps and soviet union used to be a thing and ukraine hasn't even existed for that long and you know Hopefully, Vladimir Putin overplayed his hand and everyone turns against him. And hopefully five years from now, Putin goes the way of Saddam Hussein, I guess. But then we have a super destabilized, enormous Russian Federation. But, you know, what do I know? This is not this week. This week in geopolitics. This week in geothermal heating. This week in the seven continent model. Oh, God. So, yeah, I'm disqualifying all the three drinks that I tried to review this week. Thank you for listening. I love you guys.